Welcome to Be Brave at Work, a podcast devoted to helping you take the next step in your workplace. Each week, we'll be talking with real people with real stories about things they have not said or done or have said or done in their workplace that required bravery. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. This is Ed Everts, and I'm the founder and president of Excellius Leadership Development. I hope you have listened to our past podcast conversations. And if you'd like to hear past episodes, go to BeBraveAtWork.com, subscribe to our podcasts, and learn some valuable lessons about bravery at work. Be on the lookout as well for my new book, Drive Your Career, Nine High-Impact Ways to Take Responsibility for Your Success, which is being published in September of 2020. I'm really excited about our guest today. Our guest today is Bill Flynn, who is a leadership coach, speaker, and author of the new book, Further Faster, the vital few steps that take the guesswork out of growth. And Bill works extensively with entrepreneurs. And I know in the entrepreneurial world, there are many, many examples and opportunities of bravery. How are you, Bill? I'm doing great, Ed. Thanks for having me on. Terrific, terrific. So I did a brief introduction of you, but why don't you tell folks a little bit more about your background and what you do today? Yeah, sure. Uh, I sort of have two phases to my career, if you will. Uh, from the early 90s till about 2015, I did startups for a living here in Boston. Um, as you know, it's how we met a few years ago. And uh, I learned a lot from that. You know, uh, certainly I love the puzzle of a startup. I love ha uh, having the opportunity to try to figure stuff out uh, and really enjoyed doing that for, for many years and was relatively successful at it on a percentage basis. My, I was five for six. Um, not so much at the, in, at the back end. The last few were, were not quite as good. But good odds anyway, five out of six, not bad. Exactly, yeah. Five out of six was pretty good. Um, been through two IPOs, seven acquisitions, uh, and really learned a lot from that. And one of the things that I learned from that was that I was my general style was a coaching style. Uh, I wasn't smart enough at the time to know that's what I was doing until I became a coach. So after startup number 10, I went to phase two, which was to um, become a leadership coach. And that's been a great experience for me. Uh, it sort of fits naturally with to what I like to do. And my brain seems to get its head around. Um, so that's what I've been doing the last for uh, four years now um, here in, in and around the Boston area. So that's sort of my a small, um, short story of my, my journey. Always great to hear about people's backgrounds, Bill. And I'm just wondering, in this world of startups, uh, a lot of our listeners believe that startups require a tremendous amount of bravery, that even doing a startup or kicking off a startup or starting a startup, right, is something that requires bravery. Have you seen or experienced that as you've made this journey? Absolutely. Um, just if you, if you just look at it um, sort of from an analytical perspective, and if you believe the numbers, I do a lot of research and reading about things like this. And the, the research I've read is between 75 and 96% of all startups fail within 10 years. So, so you have to be brave and, and probably a little crazy because the odds are just against you. You know, there's that fine line between you know, bravery and stupidity, right? Um, and the odds are against you. Uh, and I, I, um, I think a founder has to be, I call a founder, a really great founder is a Goldilocks founder. They have to be kind of crazy, but not too crazy. 
it's because it's a dynamic world. The odds are against you, but if you if you fall in love with the problem and fall in love with the customer, you've increased your tran- your chances tremendously to make something good out of it and and to survive and and hopefully thrive. Yeah, when you hear odds like that, seventy five to ninety six percent of startups fail. You know, what do you think? It requires for somebody to still jump in and you know take a swing at the ball. Yeah, there uh, I sort of alluded to it. There's two main things that <clears throat> that I think really have to be there. One is that don't fall in love with your idea. Uh, I've done this ten times, and I've worked with dozens and dozens of others um, founders, startup founders. It is pretty rare that the first idea that you come up with is actually the one that succeeds. And it was it, it was zero for 10 in, in my 10. It was never the first idea that the founders had. It wow. was some pivoting or some modification to it. That was really what happened. Um, sometimes it's a big pivot. Sometimes it's a slight pivot. But it's, it's never been, in my experience, exactly what you thought it would be when you first started. Um, and that's because, you know, I th- there's a great saying by, you know, Mike Tyson, which is, you know, it's great, it's great to have a good plan to get punched in the face. And customers punch you in the face. You know, they don't do it literally, but they, they don't care what you do. They only care what you do does for them. And if you focus on that, and I mentioned earlier, you have to fall in love with the problem that they have and them and the customer themselves become empathetic, become journalistic in your approach and just trying to figure out what really matters to them. You know, asking the who's, what's, where's, when's, why's, that will give you a lot of great data to do the stuff that you love as a founder, which is now figure out how can I solve for that? Um, so that's really important. Uh, the other thing is, is don't run out of money. <laughs> that's, the, that's the advice I always give is that you have to be, figure out the money thing. It, you need to run out of cash. Fig, figure out the problem. Don't run out of money. That's your first two problems. You just focus on that. You've, again, increased your odds tremendously of, of getting somewhere. It's not a guarantee at all, but it certainly increases your odds tremendously. Well, I love that mental model. And I think, Bill, this probably only comes from the experience that you've had doing what you do that, you know, don't fall in love with your product or your service, fall in love with the problem you're solving, because oftentimes it's not your original idea that takes flight. And I think most people who look at entrepreneurs or startups think that it's the first idea that they had while sitting at the kitchen table or taking a shower. They had this brilliant idea and that's what they are now doing. Yet it sounds as though that it's not that idea, but a modification or version of what they originally thought of. Yeah, or something completely different, right? Airbnb was, they were doing seating pads as their big idea. Um, and they still sell them. I guess Brian Chesky still sells them on some website. But they came up with Airbnb because they needed some money. Uh, and there was a big convention in town. And like, hey, what if we just rented out our space? And then somehow something came of that. And that also wasn't exactly the end. They really, it took years for them to figure it out. And they didn't really make it happen until Brian, I think it was Brian or, or Joe, I can't remember which one. They were told to go to New York and because that's where most of their clients were. And so under the pretense of taking photographs and helping the, their, their Airbnb folks to, to, to make the um, environment, you know, the pictures more aesthetically pleasing and more attractive, he sat down with like 30 people and just said, okay, show me how you use the app. What are you doing? 
How are you? Why did you click that button? And he gathered all this information and he brought it back. And that's when they took off because again, he fell in love with the problem, sat with the customer, was empathetic, asked really great questions. That's when the, the hockey stick thing started for him. Right, right. You know, you also hear stories, and I would imagine this might take a little bit of bravery that many of these startups, even large global entities like Airbnb or Uber, are not profitable for many, many years, that they are operating negatively for, uh, you know, from a cash or a profit perspective, and yet we keep going. I wonder if you have any thoughts or observations on that. Yeah, I do. And they're a little controversial. <laughs> That's okay. Bring it on. All right. So um, most startups, especially in high tech, ask for outside money relatively early on. And when you ask for outside money, uh, you've decided right then and there, you're going to sell the company, unless it's a bank or family or friends or something. But if it's an investor of some kind, a, an angel or P firm or VC, you've decided to sell the company and they want you to sell the company because in order for them to make their money back, so then they can go raise another fund to do it for other people. They need you to do that. Um, so they want you to grow really fast because they know that most startups fail, but if they can get them to grow extremely fast, the ones that survive should be able to help them pay back through acquisition or IPO some of their fund, which, you know, which will then help them do the next one. So that's one of the main reasons why uh, they aren't profitable right away. Um, many founders would like to be profitable, um, but it's hard to do, especially if you're being asked by seemingly very educated and experienced um, folks. Um, so, so they take that advice. And I often say that's not really the best advice sometimes, right? Until you've figured it out. If you, if you need it because you need to then you figured out a situation and you need to accelerate growth to sort of beat people to the spot that you're reaching for and you don't have enough money, your customers aren't funding you enough, then that's okay, right? But but know that you're deliberately making that decision, uh, that you're just going to sell the company uh, probably within five to eight years, if not sooner. So that's, that's almost always the situation as to why you're never profitable. There are ways to be profitable. But uh, it's rare. Right, right. Well, there's always stories behind the stories, right? So exactly. we hear, you know, all of the flash and dazzle around companies like Uber and their relationship with the public and these stories. But behind the scenes, there's, you know, what you observe and what others there might be actually experiencing. Yeah. And if I may, um, there's a great story, which not many people know. Uh, they know the story that's told, but um, if you talk to Reed Hastings, who was one of the co-founders of um, Netflix, uh, and one in the pre and his his co-founder wrote a book recently um, about the experience, and, and he's no longer there. Uh, but Reed is now running the company. The story that they tell, which they tell it because they said it's just a really good story and it's easy to get it. Which was, you know, he was he was bitching about the fact that he had to pay a forty dollars fine to Blockbuster for some movie, and I can't remember the name of the movie, but it was a specific movie they talk about in terms of late fees, and he got really upset, and he wanted to fix that problem. That's what they tell, but that's not at all what happened. Uh, he and, um, God, I can't remember the guy's name. He and the co-founder actually drove to work on a regular basis. They worked together for years, and they would have these discussions and debates back and forth and 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 reed was the practical money guy with experience and the other and the other person was an idea guy and they would talk about the ideas and reed would ask tough questions and it 
it was through that process that they finally came to the idea of, of this opportunity in the marketplace. It wasn't the, he got mad one day and then all of a sudden he started Netflix. It just didn't happen that way, but it's a good story. <laughs> it is. It plays well, right? Yeah. So Bill, when you think about bravery in the workplace, you know, what words or phrases come to mind for you? So, um, the, I'm a big Amy Edmondson fan who I think you're, you are as well. Uh, and I think a lot of bravery comes from what she talks about. Uh, she has this great quote, which says, it turns out that no one wakes up in the morning, jumps out of bed and says, I can't, I can't wait to go to work today to look ignorant, incompetent, or negative. We want to look smart and helpful and positive. However, in the workplace, too often, if you don't want to look ignorant, you don't ask any questions. If you don't want to look incompetent, you don't admit weakness or mistake. If you don't want to look intrusive, you don't offer any of your ideas. And if you don't want to look negative, you don't criticize the status quo. So I think those are the ways to be brave. Speak up, ask questions that show your ignorance, admit that you don't know something. Um, and if enough people do that, then everyone it's, it's a nice ripple effect, right? Is that people will start to realize, yeah, we're all human. We're all flawed. We don't have all the answers, even though we'd like to think we do. I think that's bravery, uh, you know, in, in, in really in the context of, of the, the person in the workplace, not the leader, but really just everyone. We actually are going to be interviewing Amy this week for our podcast and she wrote a book recently and you have a chapter in your book that i'd love to talk a little bit about about psychological safety right this idea a little bit about what you're describing can you tell us how or where psychological safety plays a role in you know helping take the guesswork out of growth for entrepreneurs and startups yeah so i mean it starts with the um premise of Hey, you've, you've supposedly hired all these really great people. Um, they're probably have all or most of the skills and they're a good fit for your organization. Yet too often we just tell them what to do. Uh, Jim Collins calls it the genius with a thousand helpers. Wouldn't it be a lot better if you tapped into those resources on a regular basis, gave them the freedom to offer up ideas and suggestions, um, and they didn't feel like there was a, a risk of retaliation or retribution, you know, directly or indirectly. If you can create that kind of environment or that atmosphere, as I like to say, then that's how you can create that psychological safety. We're going to pause in our conversation with Bill Flynn and invite you to join us next week as we continue to hear Bill talk about his own experience with bravery in the workplace. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us this week, and we hope you join us next week as we further explore being brave at work. We also welcome you to subscribe to our podcast at BeBraveAtWork.com and or download and listen to our podcast on CastBox, Overcast, Apple, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Google, Spotify, Pandora. We are everywhere. Do you have something to say yet are not saying it? Do you have something to do yet are not doing it? Now is the time to be brave at work. Have a great week.